Welcome to the Grace Community Church Podcast. We are grace for everyone, community for everyone, church for everyone. We hope that as you listen to the message from this past Sunday, that your heart is encouraged and you find yourself being drawn to Jesus wherever you're tuning in from. We are so grateful that you've joined us and pray that you'll be blessed as you listen to this week's message. Hey friends, every once in a while I need to get out into nature to help put some things into perspective. You know, to get out underneath a like, clear night sky, look up at the stars, marvel at the vastness of space, you know, get out of the light pollution of the city and get into the, like, the really dark, dark. A few years ago, a friend of mine and I were driving through Wyoming on our way down to California. And I don't know if you've been uh, through Wyoming, but it's a huge state. It's the 10th largest. Uh, it's neither, or it's nearly like 1.4 times the size of North Dakota. So it's like North Dakota plus almost another half. Um, but that entire state has less than 600,000 people in it. That means that there are more people inside the perimeter of Winnipeg than there are in the entire state of Wyoming. So there's twice as many cows as there are people in that state. And so we're driving through, it's the middle of the night and everything is so spread out. We were on a small highway, working our way south, hoping to pick up an interstate within a few hours. And we drove for miles and miles without seeing a single other vehicle. It was eerie and it was the middle of the night. And so at one point we stopped on the side of the road because nature was calling and we got out of the truck and I realized just how dark everything was when we turned it off. I stood stunned actually for a couple of seconds because I, I couldn't remember the last time I had been in that much darkness. Uh, you couldn't see a farmyard or there was no electric light for any direction. Everywhere you looked, all oh, the only light you got was from the starry sky above. It felt like we were transported back in time. Like if I hadn't just stepped out of uh, the truck that we were driving, all you could hear were like, you know, the sound of breathing animals in the pasture next to us. It, it took a few moments to like just kind of get our bearings. And then we both leaned against the, the front of the truck and looked up at the sky. And, and I don't know if I've ever seen more stars than I saw that night. It, it was a little overwhelming. It was, it was humbling. It, it reminded me of just how small we are. I, I remember tearing up a little bit at the beauty of it all and just feeling this sense of wonder in that moment. I remember thinking how like how vast the universe was and marveling at the one who created it all, that, that God had dreamed all of this up and spoke it into being. And it was humbling, like in a healthy way. It was, it was a good reminder that there's, there's all sorts of stories being told at the same time. And the things that get me worked up and concerned, that, that God can handle that. That there, there's, there's things that are, um, may feel like they're out of my control, but they're, they're not spinning out of control. 
even on that remote highway, he knew the two of us were leaning back and watching his creation. The, the sparse, rand, sparse ranch houses that we would come across in the, uh, in the next few miles, those people had their own stories and their own worries and cares and, that, and God knew them as well. So, so every once in a while, it's helpful for me to have those moments, you know, to get down to the lake and sit by the water, to watch the trees changing color and know that, you know, seasons come and go and that, that God is with us through all of those. To get out of the hustle and bustle and look around, to get to someplace secluded and turn down the noise. To remind myself that he's God and I'm not, that he can handle the complexity even if I feel like I can't. So it calms my anxious heart when I, when I get to that place of humility, when I'm reminded that I don't have to have all of the answers, I don't have to have it all sorted out. When I humble myself before the Almighty and, and remind him myself that he is God and I'm not and that he's bigger than anything I'm worried about in the moment. I, I thought of this phrase as I was thinking about this idea and thinking through the sermon for this week, that, that humility hardwires hope. Humility hardwires hope in our bodies. When we, when we get to the place where we're reminded of how big God is, it, it takes the pressure off of us and, and it allows us to put our hope in someone greater than us. This morning we're wrapping up our series, Living Hope in a World That Is Not Our Home, where we've been digging into the letter of 1 Peter. and The theme of hope has kind of woven its way through the entire letter. And Peter ends with a reminder of where we need to place our hope. That we place our hope in a God who cares for us and who will carry us through whatever we face. So Peter, the apostle who was once so close to Jesus, he's nearing the end of his life and he's been pouring out his heart on these pages. And he writes to these uh, believers, these, these scattered ones who uh, are part of a persecuted church that are scattered throughout the provinces of Asia. And he's writing with the, with the goal of encouraging them to, to continue pressing on in their faith, to, to not give up, even in the face of suffering. He reminds them over and over again of the hope that they have, that this world may not be our home, but we still have a living hope while we are here, that we've been chosen. We are God's precious possession. And the chapter opens up with some direction to the elders in the church, to those leaders in the various churches in the region. So let's get back into the last chapter. Peter writes, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Here, Peter addresses the, the elders, those who have walked with Jesus for a long time, and he, he includes himself in that group, the one who's seen Christ's sufferings, the one who has walked with Jesus, uh, that those elders are, are to be care, careful of how they lead the flock that is under their care. These elders would likely have been uh, both older in years, but also more mature in their walk with Jesus. They're not always the oldest people in the room necessarily, but they're the ones who had come to know Jesus and who are now responsible for teaching others who are younger in the faith. And so he calls these elders, he says, 
be leaders, be shepherds, to be overseers, to watch over those who have been entrusted to their care. And the, the image that he uses there is that of sheep and shepherd. And it's a common metaphor throughout the story of Israel. The, you know, the most famous shepherd, perhaps, um, would be King David, was the beloved king of Israel, who began his ministry as a shepherd boy in Israel. The people of Israel were often referred to the sheep that were under God's care. And the priests were meant to be shepherds over his flock. And so much of the Old Testament prophecies that we read speak harsh rebukes to these shepherds who weren't shepherding the flock well. That, that it was uh, this image of the ones who cared for, who watched over God's people. And that's what the role of the shepherd was. It was it was to care for the sheep. It was to protect them from predators and to watch over them while they slept, to, to lead them to water and good grazing. And so a shepherd was essentially a, a servant to the sheep. He was the one who, who looked after and cared for. And I, I have a shepherd's crook that's uh, leaning against my bookcase in my office. And it's a regular reminder uh, to me to not confuse the calling that is on my life. That the calling is to serve, to care, to lead, yes, but to also to protect and to, and to nurture and to look after those that God has placed in my, uh, in my care or in my, in my community. So there, there are times where a pastor is called to lead and, and, to, and to, to be the, the one who's kind of out front casting vision. But I don't know that my primary calling is to leadership per se. Sometimes we think that the best pastors are the most charismatic leaders. And I'm not sure that every good leader is necessarily a good shepherd. Like History is riddled with good leaders that have led people down some pretty dark paths. And there are certainly times where, where elders, where those who have gone before, need to lead people. But if the, if the metaphor changes from shepherd to CEO... I wonder if we've missed the mark a little bit. Like when a pastor is called to, you know, say only protect the sheep, the leader can attempt to like insulate and isolate themselves from anyone or any idea that might threaten their authority. Uh, I don't know that the role is only to protect the people from the outside world or from ideas that would challenge any of their thinking. If the pastor only feeds the sheep, um, if it's only about, you know, making sure that people know their scripture, then you end up with fat sheep that never go anywhere or do anything. Uh, the call is to be a servant, is to be one who watches over and to, who does so willingly and eagerly, like not lording it over them, but being an example to the flock. I, I appreciate this scripture and this call to the elders. And I, and I think it's not just for pastors, though I, I read it in that context because of the call of God on my life. But the encouragement there is to be eager to serve and to not lord it over others. And, and Jesus reminds his disciples that that's the call of all of them. Um, you might remember an episode in, uh, in the life of Jesus when um, the, the Zebedee's sons, the, their, the, his wife, Zebedee's wife, um, comes, the mother of James and John, she comes to Jesus with a bit of a, a request. She's advocating on her boy's behalf that they might be elevated to a position of, of honor or power. I don't know exactly what she was going after, but we'll read it really quickly here. It's found in Matthew chapter 20. It says, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. 
What is it that you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. So if Jesus is sitting on a throne, she says, I, I want one of my boys on your right hand and one on your left. And Jesus says, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard this, like the rest of the disciples, they were indignant with the two brothers. And so Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, the, the chief shepherd, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's the call of any who would follow after him, especially those who are elders, those who have walked with Jesus for a long time. The, the, the lesson for us is to learn servant leadership, is to be like the shepherd. And when the chief shepherd returns, he's going to reward those who have been sacrificing for others, who have been serving, who have been following in his footsteps. And the rewards may not seem all that evident while we're serving the sheep. We may not get to see how what sort of effect we're having in those moments. I, I imagine that shepherds uh, found the job challenging at times. I know that pastors find the job challenging at times. There are times where it feels like the work is thankless and futile even. But rest assured, Peter says, that the shepherd is watching what is done in secret and what is done for the least of these and that he's going to reward that faithfulness one day. So this is the call for all of the elders, for all of the leaders, for all those who are influencing the younger followers of Jesus to watch out for, to care for, to be good shepherds of those who are under their care. Take care of those that are under your watch. Serve them well. And though, so there's a humility that is required to live in this way, a, a humility that puts the needs of others first, that's willing to walk alongside those who are hurting and in need of help, and while this often applies to those of us who are pastors, and I apply this challenge to my own heart, I believe it extends to all of those who've walked with Jesus for years. We are all called to watch out for one another. The, the call is that when, when one of us falls, when one of us is hurting, we're, we're coming alongside and caring for others. We serve one another in love, especially for those of us who've known Jesus for a long time. We need to carry on or we're not going to get this finished up this morning. Peter shifts his focus to the younger believers and then kind of to everyone else. If we continue reading at verse 5, it says, In the same way you who are younger submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So the call for those who are younger is to submit to the wisdom and care of the elders. And, and shocking as it may sound, they do know a thing or two about the way that things work. You know, sometimes in our, our youthful arrogance, we think that the older generation has lost touch, that they don't know what's up, that they, they can't, you know, they can't figure out what's going on. I, I, 
I, I realize that I'm starting to get that way with the younger generation. Like I, I, I'm, I'm not on TikTok. I'm not, you know, keeping up with all of the latest trends. And so the older I get, the more I realize, oh, I'm not, I'm not keeping up in the ways that some of the younger uh, crowd maybe would expect from me. But I've also come to realize that the, the more I know or the older I get, the more I find out the less that I actually know. And there's humility in that realization that we don't know everything. We need other people in our lives who are going to speak wisdom and help lead us. And we need to submit to some of that wisdom. I like Bono's lyrics in the song City of Blinding Lights. He says, the more you see, the less you know. The less you find out as you go, I knew much more then than I do now. I feel like that's when I think back to my 20s where I knew everything and had it all figured out. As I've matured, I realize now there's a whole lot that I'm still figuring out. There's a lot more mystery that I'm comfortable with now in my 40s than I was in my 20s. I didn't need or I needed it to be black and white then and I'm a much more okay with some gray and understanding that the spirit is at work in subtle ways that I maybe didn't recognize when I was in my 20s. The, the Dunning-Kruger effect is very real, that the, those with the least amount of uh, information seem to have the most um, uh, opinions about uh, an, an article or an idea, and the more you learn, the less strong those opinions become because you realize there's a lot more nuance to the situation. So Peter encourages the young people to like slow down, and listen and, and submit to those who are in authority. But then he calls everyone to humility. To both the young and the old, to all of you, each one of you, humility. And, and this is where I was talking about this hardwiring hope in our lives when we live in this attitude of humility. Uh, to hardwire something means that you make it a permanent feature. It's not just a software update. It's not just something that kind of can be added and changed. It's something that like becomes a part of uh, who you are. It's a permanent feature, to learn humility. All of you clothe yourselves with humility. And I love that image of, of clothing ourselves, to put on. And, and the language there is like to put on something like a rich robe or a warm coat. The, the, the original language has this idea of like wrapping ourselves up in, covering ourselves, and then tying it to ourselves. Like a bathrobe, you know, clothing yourself and then tying it tight around your waist. To cover yourself with humility. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand, it says. We will all learn humility one way or the other. Like either we choose to humble ourselves, either we choose to walk in a way of humility, choose to realize that God is God and we are not, or we find ourselves learning lessons the hard way. I think if if we, you know, in our pride decide that we're in control and we're going to make things happen, that we know exactly how things are going to work, we will find ourselves humbled when things don't go the way that we had planned. It says there that God opposes or sets himself up against the proud. I wonder if that's the difference between humility and humiliation. We can learn humility by choosing it, or we will maybe find ourselves being humiliated. Because when our pride pushes against God, we're going to lose out. God always wins in those equations. But humility brings peace and hope because we remind ourselves that God is in control. We choose to relinquish control and relinquish the tight hold we have on the we're writing this story and we're making this happen and we go, it's, it's God, it's his kingdom and I want to participate and I want to be sensitive to what his spirit is doing. I want to listen to his still small voice and walk in his ways. You know, we cast our cares on him because he cares for us. Back to that idea of a being a good shepherd. He's the one who walks with us. 
Anxiety comes when we feel like we're out of control. And newsflash, we're never in control. We only ever have the illusion of control. And humility recognizes that, recognizes that, and chooses to trust in the goodness of God. And so that's why it hardwires hope in us. That's why it becomes this thing that we, you know, even when it doesn't necessarily make sense, we have peace. Even when it feels like everything around us is swirling and churning, we have this hope that like, no, but, but God is still with us. We have not been abandoned. We have not been left alone, even in the midst of suffering and trial. And that's what Peter closes off his letter with, a reminder that like, if we stand firm, if we, if we lean into God, that he is going to make us strong. We continue reading, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him, be the power forever and ever. Amen. The call here is to see things as they are, to be alert, clear, sober-minded. Um, the enemy wants to tear you down, and the only way he accomplishes that is if he gets you to give up hope or gets you to believe that you're in control and take back some of those things. If you believe the lies that, you know, the, the suffering that you're, that you're feeling is because God no longer cares for you or that you deserve it, that somehow God is punishing you. You know, suffering's an interesting thing to, to work through, um, not just as a like mental exercise, but when you're walking through it to, to recognize where God is in the midst of our suffering. Because sometimes we bring suffering on ourselves. There, there is a certain level of suffering uh, that like that we can bring on ourselves. Like if, if we if we spread a bunch of lies about something or someone and then we get caught up in that web of lies and we have to like disentangle and make amends with with people like we you do reap what you sow so there are some times where the suffering that we're feeling the loss of relationship is because we said or did something that was unwise and and we brought that on ourselves if our friendships become difficult to maintain it can be because we've been the ones who have brought that on ourselves but not all suffering is our fault, and not all suffering is designed to teach us a lesson. Some suffering is only meant to be endured. And in the midst of that suffering, we can be drawn closer to God. In the midst of that suffering, we may learn some lessons, but we don't go through the suffering with the point of teaching us a lesson. We like to believe that everything happens for a reason, but I'm not sure that it does, because there are some things that happen in our lives that are completely unreasonable. There, there's no, what's the lesson to be learned here? What is God trying to teach me? Again, the choice is for us to trust God in the midst of that, but not necessarily to be looking for the reason why we went through the suffering that we went through. The choice is for us to, like, in spite of and in the midst of our suffering, in, the, in spite of the fact that things aren't going the way that we had hoped, that they don't make sense to us, that God still does. God is still worthy of our trust. We stand firm. We resist the urge to try to explain it all or completely understand it. There's, there's been plenty of suffering in my life that I will likely never understand, at least not on this side of eternity. And Peter reminds the believers that they're not alone in that. 
that there are people all over the world who are enduring suffering that doesn't necessarily make sense other than to explain that we live in a world that has not yet been made perfect. God is with them and he's with us. So many of our brothers and sisters are going through similar things. So there's this weird camaraderie that happens in suffering. Like we've been in the trenches together. We, we draw strength from those who have suffered alongside us, from those who have suffered well. I'm more ready to trust someone who has been through some stuff than someone who seems to have all of the answers but has also had a pretty easy go of things. Those who have lost much, those who have suffered much, tend to also understand grace and mercy in a different way than those who haven't. They understand sorrow and joy on a level that is only reached when you get to that depth of suffering. And, and I love the promise at the end of that section that the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered will restore you and make you strong. He himself will restore us. He will make us strong. This is the hope that gets hardwired in our system when we humble ourselves and trust in him, even in the midst of our suffering. This is how hope gets hardwired into your system, that you trust even when it doesn't seem to make sense. How we have living hope in a world that is not our home. We believe that the story continues beyond this life that we're living. Because the truth is, we have this one great life that we're experiencing, but it's not the whole story. God has built eternity into the heart of all of us. And one day we're going to step into that perfection that he has planned. But until then, we're going to experience pain and sorrow. Suffering at times will threaten to crush us. But if we hold out hope, if we put our trust in him, if we humble ourselves and recognize that he is God and we are not, he'll restore us and make us strong here and now, but also in the age to come. This is the message that Peter's sharing with those who are persecuted and discouraged. These disciples is hold on, stand firm, resist the enemy. This is the message of hope that I hope spans through the centuries and reaches our hearts as well. The last couple of verses of First Peter are kind of his closing remarks. He says, with the help of Silas or Silvanus, depending on your translation, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So that Silas there, this is sort of like some, you know, Peter writing, maybe even just writing this in his own hand. He's, he's gotten on in years. Silas or Silvanus may have been writing for him or helping Peter write this letter. He maybe have been the one who traveled uh, and, and brought the letter to all of those various churches. It may be the Silas that Paul did a bunch of his missionary journeys with. We're not entirely sure. Um, but he sends this greeting, this one, this faithful brother who I've written to you briefly, encouraging you to stand firm. There's a reference there to Babylon. It's likely actually talking about Rome when Peter says Babylon. Uh, the people saw themselves as under the boot of a different empire. Babylon was kind of the catchphrase for the empire that rules over us and that wants nothing but evil for us. Um, so they saw themselves sort of as people in exile, strangers, aliens. That's language he's used all through the letter. And so Babylon is the catch-all for like any empire that rules over the people with an iron fist and sets itself up in opposition to the kingdom of God. So the she there who is in Babylon um, is likely talking about the entire church in Rome, like all of those faithful followers of Jesus who are in Rome 
where Peter is writing to, the other believers that Peter's close with, um, as well as John Mark, the traveling evangelist, not literally Peter's son, but my son Mark is likely John Mark. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Like when, remember that you are in this together. Remember that you uh, love one another deeply, he has said through the letter. To, to greet one another and remind one another that handshakes, hugs, and high fives aren't just for the couple of minutes on the Sunday morning when we gather. That we, we, we encourage one another, we draw close to one another, and then peace to all of you is how he ends his letter. I, I trust that this letter would have been a great encouragement to those believers. Hearing from Peter um, as they struggled to be faithful to Jesus in their day, in their age, what it meant for them to walk out uh, the kingdom values in their neighborhood. And, and I hope that they, in the midst of their persecution and pain, felt this buoyancy that came from an encouragement like this. And they would hear that clear call of hope, living hope in a world that is not our home. But I trust that those words reach through the centuries into our hearts as well, that they bring comfort to us, whatever we're going through, that, that God is aware of and present with you even in the midst of your trials, that we can have hope, that this is not the whole story, that as we humble ourselves under his mighty hand, that he lifts us up, as we recognize that we don't have to have all of the answers, we don't need to know the reasons behind everything, we find hope, and that hope gets hardwired in our hearts, that faith rises up, in us as we turn our hearts to him. That we can lean into many of the passages that we've read throughout this letter. Like at the beginning when it said, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Would this hope get hardwired in our hearts that He's given us new birth into this living hope, this living hope in a world that is not our home, and that it would carry us into this next season of life that we find ourselves in. Let's pray. God, we place our hope in you, not in the one who is um, distant or far from us, but the one who is writing this great story. We humble ourselves and trust in your goodness. Would you help us to see, even in the midst of our trials, that you are with us? Help us to trust, even when the way seems dark and fraught with danger. Would you, would you hardwire hope in our hearts? Would it become a part of who we are? Not just a fleeting hope that comes with circumstances, but something that is a deep bedrock trust that we know that you are good and you will carry us through. Would you build that kind of strong trust into us? That when we cast our anxiety on you, we find strength in your spirit. Would you help us keep our eyes on your kingdom, both here and now and in the age to come? Would we walk this path as people with living hope in a world that is not our home? For we ask these things in your great name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we are getting back into our fall rhythm. Uh, regular ministries are going to be getting started again. Next week is our kickoff Sunday. We'd love to see you here if you're able to be with us. Uh, on the 17th at 2.80, Karen, for our Sunday brunch. Um, you can head over to the website for all the other stuff that's getting started up you know, uh, through September and into October. Uh, there's opportunities to give and uh, be connected uh, here at Grace there as well. Thanks for being a part of, of Grace and our mission to be Grace for everyone. Would you, would you experience God's grace and abundance this week, but would you also share it with people around you? And we pray that the beauty of God would be reflected in your eyes. The love of God be reflected in your hands. The wisdom of God be reflected in your words. 
and the knowledge of God flow from your heart that all might see and seeing believe. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peace to you.